So we are continuing in our series of messages through the Psalms this morning. And this morning we find ourselves in Psalm 69. Uh, If you are able, would you stand with me for the reading of this passage of Scripture out of reverence for God's holy and authoritative word. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there's no foothold. I have come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. I am weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies. What I did not steal... Must I now restore? O God, you know my folly. The wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. Let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me. O Lord God of hosts, let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor through me. O God of Israel, for it is for your sake that I have borne reproach, that dishonor has covered my face. I have become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons. For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. When I wept and humbled my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. When I made sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to them. I am the talk of those who sit in the gate, And the drunkards make songs about me. But as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord. At an acceptable time, O God, in the abundance of your steadfast love, answer me in your saving faithfulness. Deliver me from sinking in the mire. Let me be delivered from my enemies and from the deep waters. Let not the flood sweep over me or the deep swallow me up or the pit close its mouth over me. Answer me, O Lord, for your steadfast love is good. According to your abundant mercy, turn to me. Hide not your face from your servant, for I'm in distress. Make haste to answer me. Draw near to my soul. Redeem me, ransom me because of my enemies. You know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. My foes are all known to you. Reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. Let their own table before them become a snare, and when they are at peace, let it become a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see, and make their loins tremble continually. Pour out your indignation upon them, and let your burning anger overtake them. May their camp be a desolation, let no one dwell in their tents. For they persecute him who you have struck down. And they recount the pain of those you have wounded. Add to them punishment upon punishment. May they have no acquittal from you. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living. 
Let them not be enrolled among the righteous. But I am afflicted and in pain. Let your salvation, O God, set me on high. I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than an ox or a bull with horns and hoofs. When the humble see it, they will be glad. You who seek God, let your hearts revive. For the Lord hears the needy and does not despise his own people who are prisoners. Let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and everything that moves in them. For God will save Zion and build up the cities of Judah, and people shall dwell there and possess it. The offspring of his servants shall inherit it, and those who love his name shall dwell in it. This is the reading of God's word. May he add his blessing to it to our hearts this morning in his name. Please be seated. So this morning we come to this Psalm 69. And we come to a psalm that I hope you can sense is one that's very powerful. It's a psalm that is just full of pain, of passion, and full of praise. It's a psalm of David, we understand. Even though you may have noticed, may not have picked up on it, but verses 34 to 36 at the very end of the psalm actually seem to refer to a time later than David, a time when the kingdom had already been divided and there was an Israel and a Judah, and even when some of the cities of Judah had been either conquered or destroyed by some enemy. Those verses seem to have been added very early on to the original psalm written by David in order to apply it to another particular situation of distress and need for God's saving help. It's all part of the divinely inspired psalm that is included in the canon of scripture. Clearly also, this is a what we call a messianic psalm. A psalm that has very direct relevance to the New Testament development of God's redemptive purposes in the covenant of grace. And we know that that's true as evidenced by the fact that, and this is a quote from James Boyce in his commentary, he said, next to Psalms 22 and 110, also messianic psalms, it is the psalm, <clears throat> psalm most frequently cited in the New Testament. Seven of its 36 verses are directly quoted, and others furnish themes relating to Christ's work that are expanded in the Gospels. And so we'll examine this psalm under three headings today. We'll look first at uh, persecution and rejection. We will look second at supplication, prayer. And we will look thirdly at praise. First of all, in the first 12 verses, persecution, um, rejection, both, both really the same thing in this circumstance. Clearly David in these verses is one who is in deep distress, even in desperation. You hear him talking about floods that are sweeping over him, that he's literally drowning, that he is stepping into what we would think of as quicksand that drops you down and has no place for you to stand and be able to keep your head above the ground. Save me, O God, is how he begins this psalm. We also understand from these verses that his trial is one of long duration. When you look at verse 3, look at what David says. I am weary with my crying out. My throat is parched from my crying out. My eyes grow dim with what? Waiting for my God. 
So in these first 12 verses, David is praying. We're going to hit a subsection that's focused on supplication and prayer. But David's praying, of course, even in these verses. And in fact, he has been praying for an extended amount of time here. But in these first 12 verses, there is a sense in which David, and this could be a guide for us as we approach God in prayer, in which he is sort of, to put it crassly, getting God's attention. Where he is setting the stage for the prayer that he really wants to put before God. Notice, for instance, as he talks, he he, he focuses on his desperation, his desperate situation. He focuses on how long he's been dealing with it and waiting for God to answer him. He focuses on the great number of his enemies. He focuses on the tremendous might of his enemies. He focuses on their hatred of him and his innocence against them. Notice how he says, they hate me without cause. They attack me with lies. I have to restore what I didn't steal. Now, David again is not claiming that he's sinless. David knows that he is a sinner. And in fact, there's a likelihood, at least in my mind as I look at this passage, that David understands that what is happening to him now is a direct result of his sin. But not against them. You see the difference? He hasn't sinned against these people. They're accusing him of things. They're lying about him. They hate him with no reason because he's not sinned against them. We do know David sinned against God, against you and you only have I sinned, he said in Psalm 51, relating to his sin with Bathsheba and Uriah. And we know that back in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 10 and 11, God told him, your, your sin has been set aside, but as a consequence of your sin, the sword will never leave your house. I will raise up trouble for you within your own family. And so it's very possible that this is dealing with the situation when Absalom was coming against David and driving him out of the city and threatening to kill him and certainly to dethrone him. I also want you to notice that David also is an encouragement for God to act, puts before God his own, what we call his own federal status or relationship. His his representative relationship with God's people in God's eyes. You understand? He is the king. He represents God's people. As goes the king, so goes the nation is is the word that we often remember from history in general and in scripture in particular. He desires that God not allow the people that he represents to suffer because of him. To be dishonored and disgraced discouraged because of him. Also notice, he he reminds God that he's being opposed in this way by these people because he is God's anointed king. Because of his relationship to God. It is for you that I am suffering reproach, David says. He's even suffered alienation from his own family members, his own people, because of this. In the meantime, he reminds God that my passion for your house, for your kingdom, for your glory, my passion for your house, your worship, your glory, has been the focus of my heart. And because of this, and because I am your representative, O God, the reproaches, the taunts, the reviling of those who feel this way to God have actually been directed at David. 
In essence, David is praying, God, I'm being attacked for your sake. Help me. Notice in verses 10 through 12, he tells God how he humbled himself before God over those things. He has wept before God. He has fasted before God. He's humbled himself. And when he did that, he says, that became my reproach. They, They scorned me because I did that. When I put on sackcloth for my clothing, I was mocked because of it. David is humbling himself before God. He is showing the broken and contrite spirit that God desires in his people. David, in fact, asserts that all levels of the people were engaged in this demeaning, mocking approach to him. From the respected elders who sit in the gate in judgment, down to even the drunkards as they sing over their drinks making songs about him and mocking him. In other words, David pleads his humiliated, humiliating condition before God as a motivation for him to act on his behalf. And so the stage has been set. God's attention hopefully has been caught and directed toward him and his desires. And so now we find in verses 13 to 28 that David moves on, again, even though the whole psalm is a prayer, moves on to this area of supplication. And the the word I've added to supplication is actually vindication. David wants to be vindicated in God's eyes and before the sight of his enemies. That's what his supplication is for here. It is true the entire psalm is a prayer. It's true from what we've seen in, in those first 12 verses that David, even long before this psalm, has been crying out, passionately with weeping, fasting, and sackcloth to God to the point that he's worn out. And yet, there's something very essential for us to note in that. Even though David has worn himself out in an extreme way in all these prayerful, broken approaches to God, and even though it seems that God has not yet answered his prayer, David doesn't give up and stop praying and turn to some other avenue for relief. It is specifically at that point that David doubles down on his prayer to God now. And although it is true that all these enemies are focused on mocking him, taunting him, reviling him, David isn't like that. You see, they are the enemies of David and the enemies of God, but David is a man of God. In fact, a man after God's own heart. And so when we look at verse 13, we actually find an abundance of instruction for us on how we can follow David's example and approach God in prayer. Notice what he says as he's talked to God about the world and how sinful and wicked all of these people are. His response now is, but as for me, now I want you to notice me, God. I've pointed you toward them. Now I want you to focus on me, my my prayer. I am praying to you. I am bowing myself before you. And my prayer is not out in general to anybody, but it is to you. And notice, even though this second book of the Psalter uses Elohim mostly to refer to God, this is one of those places where David can't just use the generic name of God. My prayer is to you, O Yahweh, O Lord, the covenant name of God, the name that binds him in covenant relationship to his people. 
Yes, David says, it seems like it's been a very long time that I've been praying to you with no clear answer, and I am weary. I am worn out. But notice what he says to God in this verse. At an acceptable time. That word means at a time of your favor. At an acceptable time, at a time of your favor and grace, O God. And then notice, he doesn't say just answer, he says, in... In the abundance of your steadfast love. Notice he's not just asking for what he can have. He is still praising God and and rejoicing in his infinite attributes. The abundance of your steadfast, loyal, faithful, gracious love. Notice as opposed to the hatred of his enemies. Answer me again in your saving faithfulness. David understands the message God has given all throughout Scripture. I and I am alone. I and I alone am the Savior. And so he prays that God would reverse the threats of verses 1 and 2. Don't let me drown in the deep. Don't let me sink in the mire. Don't let the flood sweep over me. But notice his prayer at this point starts to get a bit uncomfortable with people, especially in our day. His prayer becomes what what theologians call imprecatory. And what that means is that in this part of his prayer, David is actually literally calling down God's curse upon his enemies. Just look at verses 20 through through 25. Let their own table, table is supposed to be a sign of God's blessing, right? Let their own table become a snare before them. And when they are at peace, which I haven't been able to find because of them, let that become a trap for them. Let that peace itself become a trap. David's eyes are dim with seeking after God, but let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see at all. And make their loins tremble continually. Make them weak and fearful. Pour out your indignation on them. Don't just just punish them. Pour out your indignation on them. Let your burning anger overtake them. May their camp be a desolation. Nobody in it. And let no one dwell in their tents. Why is David so passionate about this? Why is David praying so strongly in this way about these enemies? Note what he says in verse 26. It's interesting here. um, David's calling down this curse, but I want you to notice what a reformed man David really is. David says in verse 26, the reason you should do this to them is because they persecute him, me, David, they persecute him who you have struck down, Yahweh. You've struck me down. They're the ones persecuting me. And they recount the pain of the ones, those that you have wounded. Again, me, David. That word wounded, by the way, is a word that refers to being wounded, uh, pierced, like with a sword. See, David knows, even in his terrible distress with these multiple enemies powerful all around him attacking him, he understands that it is actually God who is the one who is striking him down now and wounding him. He understands that God orders all things that come 
to pass, particularly in regard to his people. And that God is doing this again, as I said before, likely for his past sinfulness that he's already confessed to God. You know my folly. It's not hidden from you, O God. He also knows, by the way, that these enemies are God's agents to carry this out against him. But he also knows that they are not doing it for holy reasons to honor God. They're doing it vindictively and wickedly out of a hatred for him. And so for that reason, he calls for punishment upon punishment. He actually petitions God that you would not in the court of judgment give them any acquittal at all. And then notice verse 28. Verse 28 is the ultimate, ultimate curse. Let them be blotted out, wiped out, erased is what we would do, but they couldn't erase in that day. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living. Let them be dead. Let them not be enrolled among the righteous. Don't let their names appear in your book of life in heaven. Those who you will redeem and bring to be with you. The ultimate, ultimate curse. And then it's interesting that on the heels of that fairly dark sounding passage of all these imprecatory curses, David turns in verses 39 to 36 to praise to God. Yes, he admits. He continues to talk about himself. He, he is turning away from his enemies now and returning God's attention back to him. I'm still waiting patiently, God. I'm still in pain. I'm expectantly waiting for your answer. And here is the answer he desires. And he's confident because of God's promises to him. Let your salvation, O God, set me on high. See, David can pray this prayer with confidence because David is not exalting himself. God has already promised to have him set on high. And he has already demonstrated the broken and contrite spirit before God that God desires and requires in his people in verses 10 and 11. And so now he expresses his heart toward God. When that salvation comes, notice what I'm going to do. I will praise, I will praise the name of God. And I will make that praise to the name of God with a song. Again, I keep emphasizing the importance of our singing and worship to God. It should be heartfelt. It should be full of our desire toward Him. I will not only do that, he says, but I will magnify Him. I'll exalt Him. I will glorify Him. And I will do it with thanksgiving because of His grace to me. And then notice in verse 31, he expresses something that we see David express over and over and over again in the Psalms. His confidence that that attitude of his heart toward God will please God more than just sacrifices of animals. After all, he seems to imply when he brings up the, the horns and hoofs, which aren't really mentioned as part of sacrifices, it's almost as if he's saying, after all, what does God need horns and hooves of animals for? What he really wants is the heart. And God, I'm promising you mine. So part of what I want you to see here in David's response is that for David and for God's true people, it is never enough to just thank God. Our thanks must be expressed in worship of God. Our thanksgiving must lead us to worship. 
persecution, leading to prayer, leading to praise and worship of God. And then notice again in verses 32 and 33, David remembers again his federal responsibility for all of God's true people. In verse 6, he prayed they wouldn't be brought to shame or dishonor because of him. And now he prays that in his salvation by God, that they, those who are humble like him, like he's demonstrated, that those who are humble would see his salvation and be glad for it. That they would rejoice. And along with that, the point seems to be that when it seems to God's true people that that God and they and their relationship with God are being scorned and abused and kicked to the curb and, and persecuted, it seems like it's very easy for us to become discouraged and wonder about God's promises and wonder about his willingness and intent to keep them. And so David prays here that when those who are truly seeking God see him being set on high, that their hearts will then be revived as well, that they will have renewed confidence and trust in God and in his promises. Notice how he ends that verse. For Yahweh, the, the covenant faithful Lord, hears, and that implies hears always, the needy, the righteous, the needy. And God does not despise his own who are prisoners. Now those last few verses, even though not originally probably written by David, continue to praise God and call on the whole earth to praise Him as we've seen in so many preceding psalms um, and, and assure God's people of His ongoing fulfillment of His promises. Now, applying this to us, once again we've come to a psalm which some folks and maybe many folks may wonder how or if this psalm could truly be applied to us. After all, we began this psalm by talking about persecution and rejection. And David concluded his part of the psalm, at least in verse 33, by assuring God's people that he hears people that are needy and doesn't despise those who are prisoners. And, and you may be thinking, well, we live in America. We live in the land of religious freedom, the land of plenty and abundance where God has blessed things. We're not needy and nobody's persecuting us. We're not in prison. So how does this psalm apply to us? Well, first of all, I would suggest to you that if you haven't yet been able to sense the steady, determined, imminent tightening of the noose of cultural and yes even religious by those who call themselves the church rejection and persecution for those who are holding fast to the truth and the authority of God's word you either aren't paying attention to the so called cultural moment that we're living in or I prefer to think of it as a chapter in redemptive history that we are living through in this moment and in this time. You're not paying attention to what is going on around us. I think it's fair to say that in at least a metaphorical sense, if not in some ways literally true, you can already see the fences and the gates and the locks coming for those who refuse to resist who refuse to turn away from God, who refuse to cast his word aside and accept the word of the culture. See, this whole cultural 
revolution, so-called revolution that's going on, especially focused in, in, in these recent days around the, the sexuality and gender issues. This isn't a revolution that is trying to bring comfort and help to people that are oppressed, to people who are struggling with something. This isn't anything designed to make people's lives better. That's not what this is all about. This revolution is a revolution, but it is a revolution against God Almighty. It is literally a direct frontal attack on the authority of God and the character of God and His Word. You remember back in the garden, the serpent came to Eve and whispered in her ear and said, Has God really said? A question, right? Has He really said this? That's not what's happening today. You understand that? Today, nobody is saying, Did God really say that? What they're saying is, Who cares? Who cares if there is a God or if He said anything? I don't care. In fact, if He said it, I want the opposite. And I think a psalm like this brings us to a question as we consider that kind of thing, to wonder whether we, like David, will be willing to have the reproaches of those who are reproaching God in all those things fall on us. Are we willing to associate ourselves with God and take on reproach ourselves for His name? Will we be willing to suffer alienation, rejection, even if necessary from friends and family, because of our stand for God in these kinds of issues and situations that are being forced upon us in this culture? Will we be willing to be accused of cultural sin and wickedness, like David, hated with no cause, attacked with lies? Will we be willing to do that because we're standing for righteousness in this fallen world? We need to ask those questions, people, because the day is coming. We've already had people put in prison, taken to trial and found guilty over these kinds of things. And you may not be in an actual physical prison, but have you never been imprisoned, as David seems to talk about in the beginning of this psalm, imprisoned by your fear, by your anxiety, by your worry, your depression, your shame, your guilt, any of those things, all of those things. See, David wants you to know, he wants you to stand firm and to know and to rejoice that your covenant Lord hears you. Always hears you. But I think the question this psalm presses on us is, do we really believe in the power of prayer like David did? As I was Praying and working through this, a, a, a thought occurred to me, and, and trust me, it occurred to me because it's so true of me in, in many ways. Are our prayers to God often not a lot more like the voicemails that we leave for one another? You all of a sudden remember something, you pick up the phone, you call, you don't get to get a voicemail, say, hey, it's just me checking in, I want to remind you that I need this done, i got a busy day, i got to go, I'll talk to you later. Is that not how we often approach God in prayer? Well, we gave it to Him. We're on our way. Do we pray like David? 
Do we pray for a long time? Do we pray until we're weary and worn out? Do we pray until our eyes are dim because of we've been weeping over the thing that we're so concerned about? Do we humble ourselves before God? Do we even fast? And what do we do when we pray and we feel like God hasn't answered us? I think for most of us, we give up and try something more effective. Right? Well, that didn't work. Let me go somewhere else. I think the question this psalm begs us to ask ourselves is when we pray and we feel like God may not be hearing us or hasn't answered us as quickly as we want, do we quit then? Or do we go on and pray more and more and more because we know it is prayer that connects us with our God and it is our prayer that He hears always and will hear and answer. David is a godly example for us in the arena of prayer in this psalm. However, since David is an example for us of how to pray... What exactly do we do with this prayer for God to curse his enemies? Was it right for David to pray that way? Well, first of all, I'm going to give you what some may think is odd. I'm going to give you an emphatic yes as an answer to that. How do I know that? Well, first of all, that imprecatory prayer is included in the canon of Scripture. That means it is inspired by the Holy Spirit and has been ensured by God to be included in His inerrant, authoritative word for His people. But you see, we have to understand that David's situation is unique. It is not normative. It is not the pattern in that sense that we should follow. It's unique because David truly is God's anointed one in that day. He truly is the one that God put in that position to be the one that would be on his throne and the rulers and people would stand against him and try to throw off his bonds and he and God would stand together in opposition to them. To oppose David and his kingdom was to directly oppose God and his kingdom and his purposes. And actually, I would point out to you what David really is praying for here, as horrible as it sounds to us, what David is actually praying for here is God's justice. Think about Psalm 2 again. Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. The way of the righteous God knows, the way of the wicked will what? Perish. And by the way, Scripture goes on to tell us that it is God's justice that leads to repentance. Without without justice, people don't fear. They don't feel like they need to go toward righteousness. Also, by the way, I would point out to you, and you should know this by now, we've spent plenty of time in the Psalms, we have seen plenty of examples of David praying for the salvation of the nations, many of whom were his direct enemies, foes who were opposing him. So we know that David was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write this psalm because it's included in Scripture, which Jesus himself affirmed. 
But he also know it because parts of his imprecatory prayer, again, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, are quoted by New Testament authors as they wrote their own books added to the canon of Scripture that show that these prayers David made here were fulfilled in and around Christ's ministry and his atoning death on behalf of his people. So David wasn't wrong to pray this prayer. Okay, well then should we pray this way? We'd like to sometimes, wouldn't we? Well, let me say this. Very carefully understood, the answer to that question is yes and no. No, we do not pray this way about particular people, particular enemies of ours. We follow not David's example in this, we follow the greater David, Christ's example in this, who found himself in a similar, we'll see that in a moment, and yet infinitely worse situation than David was in. And when he was on the cross facing all of these things to the nth degree, he didn't say, Father, curse them. He said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. He also told us in Matthew chapter 5 verse 44 that we are to love our enemies and we are to pray for those who persecute us. And so, that is true. But you have to remember also that Jesus also taught us to pray in what we call the Lord's Prayer that let your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Can I ask you what that means in the most ultimate sense? That means that ultimately God is going to have to curse the reprobates, those who do not belong to Him, who will never submit themselves to Him, because that's the only way His will can come to full fruition on this earth. And so we're to pray in the most general sense that God's justice will always be done and that his righteousness will always prevail over the entire earth at all times. And so in a very careful way, yes and no. We also need to notice before we finish here that this psalm is, I said messianic earlier, I'm going to say it even clearer, it is about Christ. Just walk yourself through the psalm. David was parched. His throat was parched. Jesus was parched. We heard him say in the passage we read earlier, I thirst. As he was facing the crucifixion in John 19, 28. Jesus ended with multitudes that hated him without a cause. Did he not? The whole streets were filled with people shouting, crucify him, crucify him. And they attacked him with lies. They even paid people to lie at his trial to try to find him guilty on a pretense. Now, unlike David, Jesus had no sin for God to know. Jesus could never have thought or prayed with David did when he said, Lord, you know my folly. My sin's not hidden from you. Jesus had none. But as the federal head for his people, he was concerned for them. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end, and he suffered for them. Zeal for God's house, like David, consumed Jesus. The the apostles tell us that when Jesus cleansed the temple, drove out the money changers, that it was to fulfill this 
passage, zeal for your house has consumed me. His own brothers and mother thought he was mentally unbalanced and went to restrain him and take him home. His brothers didn't believe in him, at least probably until his resurrection. And talk about being forsaken by your family. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me as he hung on the cross? And while he's on that cross, aside from being forsaken by his father, he was mocked on that cross constantly by everyone who passed by. Yes, from the elders who sat in the gate, those Pharisees and Sanhedrin, all the way down to the most common person. He looked for pity. He looked for comfort. And he found none. Even in the garden, when he was in agony and wanted his disciples to pray with him and for him, what did they do instead? They slept. But he knew that the acceptable time, as David puts it, his hour, as he always called it, had finally come for him to suffer and die for the sins of his people. And when he went to the cross, Matthew 27, 34 tells us, they offered him, as David was offered, wine mixed with gall. They offered it to Christ. Paul actually quotes verse 22 about about the table becoming a snare and and piece of trap when he's talking about Israel and how they rejected Christ and that they are getting exactly what was prophesied by David in this psalm. In Acts chapter 1 verse 20, when they are needing to replace Judas among the apostles, Peter quotes this verse, verse 25, about let his camp be desolate and no one dwell in his tents. He quotes it and says this was fulfilled what David spoke in the Psalms. And Jesus was the one, by the way, that God himself struck down and pierced. You understand the word that David used for wounded, pierced here, is the very same one Isaiah used in 53.5 that we use for our assurance and pardon this morning. He was pierced for our transgressions. Our reproaches against God fell on Jesus Christ. He was the needy one that God heard and raised from the prison, raised from the grave. And in him, God answered David's prayer for us. Because he is literally the face of God turned to us instead of away from us. He literally is God drawn near to us and to our souls. And through his atonement, he is the one who has redeemed and ransomed us by literally, the word means literally by paying a price to free us. And the price he paid was his own blood to free us from sin and death and Satan. And so as we go through persecution, it should lead us to prayer, which should lead us as we consider all this, to sing to Him, praise Him, to magnify Him, to thank Him, to worship Him, the one who, as David says, literally is the steadfast love and abundant mercy of God toward us. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for a psalm that just so abundantly tells us of what you have done for us in Christ. And, and points out to us how far short we fall of actually understanding what that was and what it meant for him and what it meant for us. 
Thank you for a psalm that teaches us again and again and again the absolute essential nature of prayer. In your word you talk to us and in prayer we talk to you. And for the promise that you always hear us and that you will deliver us, ransom us, redeem us by your steadfast love and abundant mercy. We pray you would take this psalm, burn it into our hearts, help us to live in the kind of trust in you that David had. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.